The other part is that modular is often in people's mind, as soon as you say that, they think of trailer parks mm-hmm. or they think of some substandard temporary type of building. But I tell you, modular now, it can be very, very beautiful. Welcome to the Construction Disruption Podcast, where we uncover the future of building and remodeling. I'm Todd Miller of Isaiah Industries, manufacturer of specialty metal roofing and other building materials. Today, my co-host is Ryan Bell. Ryan, good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Todd. How are you? I am doing very well. We are once again recording on a Friday, so I'm kind of looking forward to the weekend and a little bit of downtime. It's almost here. Yeah. Absolutely. So do you have anything to kick us off with here today? I do. I do. Um, So yesterday I was actually off for the day because I was taking my oldest uh, stepdaughter on a tour of a college campus and I had to stop and put some air in my tires. And I remember when it used to be free to get air at the gas station, but now it's like a dollar fifty, and you almost run out of time before you can hit all your tires if you need to. Do you know why that is? I went and asked them why. Do you know why? (laughs) I probably do, but I'm not going to spoil it, so I'll let you say. No, spoil it if you know. It's an easy one. I am guessing inflation. You got it. (laughs) So I was reading the other day about heavy alcohol consumption and how it causes severe liver damage, and it scared the crap out of me, so I decided to quit reading completely. (laughs) Very good. Oh, well, so I will let our audience know something else. We are going to be doing our challenge words uh, in this show, and that's where uh, both Ryan and I, plus our guest, have a challenge word that we have been challenged to work into the conversation. So you as the listener can try to pick out and figure out what our challenge words were. And at the end, we will discuss our success or lack thereof with our use of our challenge words. So uh, let's get going. Uh, Today's guest is Stephen Hailstrom from Toronto. Stephen has great experience in construction and in particular in modular construction. Uh, He's currently president and chief operating officer of the Modular Solution Rise Up Modular. He works to provide developers, regulators, manufacturers, contractors, suppliers, municipalities, engineering and architecture firms, and others with assistance in creating modular projects that run successfully from design to budgeting and production all the way through to final inspection. Stephen, welcome to Construction Disruption. We're looking forward to a great conversation today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Todd. So am I. I love the name of your the name of your podcast, I think it's great. There's a, if there's any industry that needs disruption, I think it might be this construction industry. Amen. I hear you there. And and the name is all credit due to Ryan for that, that he came up with that. And I, I think it's fantastic. So can you give us a kind of a quick overview of your experience in construction and, and the modular world? I've been in construction for about uh, just a little less than 15 years. And all of my construction experience has been in modular. I never, I was started in construction with a modular company and, you know, have never really done regular construction or traditional construction. Okay. During my career, I have had to supervise or manage a couple of uh, traditional construction projects, but it was just kind of ended up that way because of the job. Very good. And I love modular. I'm a big advocate of it. And uh, I think that it's certainly a, a, you know, modern method of construction that has real potential in North America and around the world. You know, it's interesting. I mean, modular has seems to have pretty deep roots in North America. And we've seen a lot of you know, advances in technology and and things happening to make it seem to be coming into its own more and more. Do you feel, I'm just curious, do you feel, since you do have a history with it, that modular has been kind of slow to take hold? Or do you feel more that it's really just kind of traveled its own path that was going to be the path it was going to be? Well, I think it has taken, it's been slow to take hold. Okay. And I think the reason for that. Well, there's many reasons, but I think the main reason is 
the resistance of the traditional construction industry to change the model that they're accustomed to. To put it in plain terms, all of the construction people out there now, for the most part, are all making money. They know what they're doing. They know how to do it. And to start a construction company today, what do you need? A pickup truck and a tool belt. Mm -hmm. To start a modular uh, manufacturing company, you need an investor, you need management, etc. So it's more challenging. Uh, but I, I think that right now, because of the real vital need for more housing, especially modular, that's what's really projecting modular into the forefront of the construction world, where even the bigger construction companies and bigger developers are going, hey, modular, that might be a way I can get my project done faster. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and when I think about it, yeah, I mean, you know, I think about the history of modular, but certainly the history of construction is much, much longer than that. And, you know, the fact that people have become very set in their ways. Well, tell me a little bit, I, and I know you're in Canada, but I'm sure you are very familiar with the entire North American market. You know, what's out there as far as capacity right now as we look at this shortage of affordable housing and if we start to look at modular and various forms of modular as being the answer to it, do we have the capacity today? Right. Wow. That's that's a very important question because bottom line is, as far as modular manufacturing companies, we don't have the capacity. All of them like now, if you look at the major players, so let's say I'm a developer and I want to get, you know, mid-rise apartment done. And so, and I go, hey, I'd like to do this modular. And I go to the modular manufacturer and the manufacturer will go, okay, sure, yes, we've done lots of this type of, of building. We know how to do it. That's good. And then they say, but our factory is full and we really can't start building this for a year. Hmm. And so then the developer goes, why do I want to use modular then? I'll just go back to my GC and have him do it. And, you know, there won't be any savings because that modular manufacturer, you know, they're busy with, they're, they're busy. And they, and unfortunately, most of the manufacturers really haven't developed systems that allow them to react well to how they're business is is uh you know brought to them so it, it capacity is in the modular world today i would say capacity is the biggest problem you could probably add a hundred you know modular manufacturers in north america and they'd all be full in no time like they'd all be busy in no time that's really interesting um when i think about it because you know, of the amount of the need we have for construction out there. And, and you're right, that could turn someone off real quick if they're going to do a large development or project and they find out, well, it really isn't going to be faster. So, but what are the expectations of someone who turns to modular construction? What are the benefits that they are expecting from doing that? Yeah, well, that's the good and the bad, you know. With modular, like anything, there's kind of, if you remember the old movie, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? <laughs> so <laughs> the uh, the good and the bad of it. There's still lots of people in the modular industry that will, especially in the sales part of it, will say, okay, modular, it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be less expensive. So from my point of view, my experience says, no, it's going to be the same cost. You may save money in construction financing, right? Mm. And there may be, if you duplicate the same building, like I said, you know, that mid-rise building, if you build 10 of those, if you're a developer, then you're going to save some money on architectural fees and, and consulting fees, you know, like engineering and, and MEP fees and things like that. But the actual hard costs of construction are not going to be cheaper. What really resonates with modular is the ability to deliver the project faster. And that's why, for example, hotels, uh, hotel chains have really, you know, reached out, glammed on 
are moving forward with modular projects. You know, like some of the big chains, they have staff that their job is to work with modular companies to make it happen. Some of the larger chains will have already stated that they want all their new buildings to be modular. And they asked me, why is it hotels? Why is it hotels? (laughs) (laughs) Because for them, what's the most important thing? The faster they can go from ground to booking that hotel, the more money they make. I did a project in British Columbia in Canada where we did, I think it was an 82-room hotel in from handshake to heads and beds in 10 months. Wow. So my calculation at the time was that that hotel recovered an extra, I think it was $5.3 million in revenue by being earlier than what their conventional construction was. Because in this case, this was in British Columbia in a ski town where they were able to open for the beginning of ski season instead of the next spring. So it uh, makes a big difference. Oh, and that's the same with virtually any hotel. What's the, the time frame look like compared to that 10 months? Well, 18 to 24 months. Okay. Okay. Yeah. About double then. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, we were able to do it in 50% of the time, call it. Sure. So today you work primarily as a consultant, right? What types of projects, I'm just curious, have you worked with projects covering the whole gamut from single family up to these multifamily and lodging type projects or? Well, for me as a consultant, it's really about the job. So I work with both modular manufacturers and with clients, right? Okay. So Modular manufacturers, they don't need a lot of help with single-family homes or with a development. And my role with a modular manufacturer might be to help them to expand the business, to develop new ways of building innovation in the construction, that sort of thing, or setting up a new plant or something like that. Whereas with the client, my role would be to, uh, like I was talking to a developer earlier today, And we were talking about basically looking at their projects and giving them an an independent analysis of whether it makes sense as a modular project, right? Like if somebody, if if a developer wants to build an upside down triangle building, then modular might not be the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, modular is, is many things, but it has some restrictions, right? Like there are some parameters that make it, you know, more challenging. Really, it's more challenging if you want it to be cost effective. Yeah. So I hope I answered the question. Sorry, I do tend to ramble a little bit. No, that's great. And actually, as you answered, I got to thinking about something. So in the in the town that I live in, there's a housing development being built right now. And this has been the first time that there's been spec homes built in my community for probably pushing 40 years. And, and it's a major home builder that's building them. They're just, uh, I won't give their name because I don't want to embarrass them, but you know, they're just stick building the homes. And I'm looking at these homes going up and I'm seeing all the imperfections. And one of the things I keep thinking is, goodness, if these were modular built, it just seems like it could be so much more controlled and the level of quality could also go up. Do you think that that's something that oftentimes is realized also through modular construction as a higher quality level? Well, I think I think you've hit on one of the biggest things. And this is something I have regular discussions with, with both modular manufacturers and developer type clients, which is that so in a regular construction scenario, who is the quality assurance person? Who's the quality control person? So the best they have in that would be, you'd say, is the site superintendent, mm-hmm. right? So that's one person on the site who then monitors all of the quality issues, whether it's how the plumbing is put together or how the drywall is put on the wall or whatever. With modular, a good or a reason, even a reasonable modular manufacturer has a quality assurance program in place 
because most of the time they are required to have that in order to meet the requirements for using modular in a project. In Canada, we have a a CSA, Canadian Standards Association, a CSA standard for modular buildings. In the U.S., they've tried a couple of times to have a a national standard for modular. I think they're a little bit closer mm-hmm. now, which I think it's a it's a good idea to have this because it it helps to assure both the client and the building inspector, like the AHJ, the authority having jurisdiction. It helps to uh, make them feel better about how this building is being put together. But in that, like with the CSA certification in Canada, it's called the certifications A277. So in that, what you're promising as a manufacturer, manufacturing or a modular manufacturer is you're promising one of the things you have to do is to provide a quality control program. And that program would for sure, you're going to have a full-time person dedicated to walking in your factory, checking as people are doing things. They will use what are called ITPs, integrated test programs, where they're going to be checking off for every individual module. Yes, okay, the drywall was done. The pipes were done. Yes, the wires are here. Yes, it's a number, you know, number 12 wire, number 10 wire, and it's in the right place and everything else. And then that really, I could go on for a long time about how the the design and the detail of the manufacturing or what are normally called drawings for construction, how much more detail they are in a uh, modular project. Because that's another thing that just helps you to control your supply chain and helps you to ensure you have you know, a better quality. There's no doubt in my mind, no doubt whatsoever that a modular project is going to have a higher degree of quality than a conventional project. And, you know, anybody can argue that with me. Yeah, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Again, especially as I've watched this project go up. So on your LinkedIn profile, um, it says that you are planning a practical, pragmatic path to truly affordable housing. Tell us a little bit about how you feel that modular. You don't remember writing that, do you? Thinking, ah, that's. Oh, yeah, no, I was just thinking, wow, I can come up with some good stuff. You know? <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how you see modular construction as being, you know, that solution to affordable housing and, you know, what has to happen in order for that to really gain legs and uh, become a reality. Yeah. Well, First, the practical pragmatic is that that's me as a person, right? So I, I'm a practical pragmatic. Like I look at, you know, what's really going to work? You know, let's not, let's not talk about it anymore. Let's get this stuff done. And in Canada, certainly, like the premier of our province announced uh, a month ago that Ontario, where I live, on uh, the province of Ontario, he's going to help somehow or another to produce 1.5 million new housing units over the next 10 years. So, <laughs> wow. So I, I don't quite know what's going on for the guy, but using our, our existing construction infrastructure, that's like an impossible task. It's not possible. And so from my point of view, what I see is that modular tech using the use of modular technology is the only way that you can, because what modular allows you to do is it allows you to create manufacturing facilities that can then even a small manufacturing facility could produce, you know, a hundred homes in a year. And instead of, you know, 10 guys who are, are building homes in different places could only produce, you know, 10 homes in a year. So I think that that manufacturing capacity is really the only way that we can move forward. Plus, combined with we have here in Canada, I know Canada and I know in the U.S. as well, we have a profound lack of skilled tradespeople. And it's hard to get, you know, it's hard to get young people to get involved in the construction industry 
and the average age of the construction worker keeps going up because that's just the way it is so that we're losing. So through immigration, certainly we're adding more people into that pool, but it's very difficult because people, you know, I don't know, they realize that at least here in Canada, maybe in Florida, but in Canada, we have this thing called winter and nobody much likes to work outside in the winter or work on construction. And, you know, the, just the working conditions on a construction site are quite different than the working conditions that are available in a covered factory manufacturing facility. So those are some of the ways of creating the capacity to meet this affordable housing. Now, what, one thing I'm not answering that you did ask is how do you make it affordable, right? Yeah. And what is affordable? True. Because that's always one of my pet things is that people use that phrase affordable housing right but what does it really mean mm-hmm. you know like what does affordable now in canada again we have what's called the cmac the canadian mortgage and housing corporation so they they look after a lot of uh they're kind of the government arm of of mortgage financing they regulate mortgages etc so the cmac says that affordable housing means that if you're owning a house, your cost for the house and the taxes, like your mortgage and taxes, can't be more than 30% of your income, right? Your, not your after-tax, your before-tax income. Okay. And if you're renting, same thing, only your rent can't be more than that. Well, in Canada, I can tell you right now, it's pretty tough to meet that because when you have housing... I live in a rural area and in Canada now, I think the average price for a house, I think, uh, maybe you could, uh, maybe Ryan can look it up while we're talking, but the, uh, I think it's around like 800,000 bucks. That's, I, I saw that number the other day and it was in that three quarter of a million, $800,000 yeah. range. And I was just like, flabbergasted. Can, right. Can you imagine? I have three daughters, two of them older they're both heading towards decent careers and everything else. But imagine how much you have to save and how long it will take you to save and to, to be able to put away a mortgage. If your house is 700000 and you want to put down 10% even on the mortgage, mm-hmm. that's seventy grand. You know, try and save 70000 bucks nowadays. Well, maybe Ryan can because he's, you know. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I just want to save enough money to go out and buy a, a, a watermelon, you know, <laughs> right? Like watermelon's my favorite, my favorite fruit. And it just, you know, when I'm thinking about saving, I'm just thinking, you know, cause all the watermelon, there aren't very many grown around here in the frozen yeah, north. Probably so, not. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, it shows that you don't, you don't have any real elaborate dreams there. It's just that watermelon. So that's, that's good. Yes, but, that's it. That, that's right. That's all it is. Um, I just want to be able to put air in my tires. Steven wants to eat some watermelon. (laughs) (laughs) Going off of that, you know, thinking about building this capacity, I know that there are some options, you know, to what we think of as modular construction where, you know, there's modules being built and shipped and carried and craned around and stuff. I mean, there's other options out there such as panelized construction you had talked to me earlier, Stephen, about something called subassembly manufacturing, which means not necessarily everything has to be manufactured under that one roof, although it gets assembled there, but you bring parts in and assemblies in from other places. Do you see that as being a bridge into full modular construction or an alternative to it? Or, you know, how do, how do all of those work together? I think the, the real answer is that it needs to be all of those things need to be done almost simultaneously right so that you can do you can do all of them so the kind of the vernacular for that is like a kit of parts right so you develop this kit of parts and then once you have that kit of parts developed you can have a an assembly facility where you assemble those those different parts together create a volumetric modular unit and then ship it the way they're doing now right so you can that that helps you not only to 
use a smaller facility because you've got your assemblies are being made at different factories. It's, it's closer to an auto uh, type manufacturing thing where you've got another manufacturer as a con- long-term contract to build doors. So that manufacturer's down the street and all they do is pump out doors. And then when you need a hundred doors, you just call them up. Hey, Cindy, can you send me a hundred doors? And they send you a hundred doors. And it's the same. That's where modular, where you want modular manufacturing to go to that type of thing. But then if you want to take it the next step, which is what the word I coined a couple of years ago is pop-up modular. So that's where instead what you do is you have a, you say, okay, I want a, well, you can even, let's say you want to do a residential, you know, 80 home residential development, right? So what you do is you, first off, the civil work is the same. You go out, put up your connections, put in the foundations, everything else. But then at the side, beside your your development, you put up one of these nice uh, spring tents, right? Like the, the big hoop tents. And then you bring all your parts and you assemble them there. And then you just lift them. You, In other words, you take your sub-assembly model and put it right beside the development. And then you, you put all your pieces together and then put them in place. So that way, instead of having these big transport trucks coming with big modules and a huge crane and everything else, instead you build the modules right on site, then place them onto the foundation directly there. And I like that model. Now, I'm certainly making it much simpler than what it really is, right? You know, it's always easy to explain it. But I've done some detailed analysis on this. And it's not just my imagination. Things like this were done in the UK 10 years ago, where they actually used, they did this not only as an affordable housing, but this was like a, um, you know, a subsidized housing program in the UK where the people who were going to live in the building did the assembly, did the building in the right beside it, and then put the building together. Do you see what I mean? So the people who end up living in the building actually built the building. So I think that has some, some opportunity as well, both from that social action point of view or just from a business point of view if you want to do a pop-up modular type thing. And then you can just take that, move it to the next site and pop up another building. Well, I, I love that idea. And, and that makes a lot of sense that all of these different options need to work together if we're really going to move forward and, and meet the needs that are out there. Yeah, I want to switch a little bit and talk about some of the challenges. I heard recently of a town, which is a town that badly needs housing, um, where a developer had proposed building a community of 30 modular built cottage homes. And frankly, other people in the town created quite quite an uproar. They weren't happy about that at all. And really, that kind of surprised me because what he was proposing seemed like a great solution. Are you finding those negative reactions? Are they becoming less to modular construction these days? Or or does it still exist out there? Well, there's a couple of different things going on there. It could be what's called nimbyism. You know nimbyism, right? Or is that a Canadian? I'm not familiar with it, but... So NIMBYism is a short form for not in my backyard. Okay. Right? So some of that can sometimes be, like I said, I live in a rural community, and there's a group here that we want to keep our area beautiful, which is code for don't build any more houses because, you know, I want to keep looking at that tree. Um, So you have that not in my backyard attitude. Sure. Okay. But the other part is, modular is often in people's mind, as soon as you say that, they think of trailer parks, okay? Or they think of, now they think of tiny homes, Mm -hmm. or they think of some substandard temporary type of building. In fact, with the CSA, one of the things I was just talking to them about just the other day was my strong suggestion that what they do is to develop a new standard 
that they would call permanent modular standard, because that standard I was talking about, the A277, was originally developed for temporary housing. And it's now morphed into what's used for permanent housing. But I think that from the point of view of users, like N4 people, they still have this picture in their mind, oh, modular, it's going to be cheap and, and uh, you know, right. not good. So I think that's what happens between those two things. But I tell you, modular now, it, it can be very, very beautiful. Very beautiful. Absolutely. You know, project I'm working on right now for duplexes, where each duplex has a rooftop patio, a green roof, solar power, you know, all in a two-bedroom, 1,200-square-foot duplex. So, you know, with a brick exterior. You know, I mean, that's not a tin can or a, a trailer park, that's for sure. Not at all. I, I'm going to show my naivety here, but I'm kind of curious. Are there architects out there who are designing using modular components? Is that happening or are most of the designs coming out of the manufacturer themselves? Sorry, I am chuckling because my wife and I have an ongoing joke about how well I get along with architects <laughs> not. Because, because the, the bottom line, again, it's this is the history of construction. And in, in construction, architects are always kind of at the top, right? Mm -hmm. So an architects consider themselves in charge of the whole project. And in a modular project, because of the way it's developed, architects really are, they're a partner in the design okay. and their scope their scope of work their role is not really diminished but it's different than what it is in a modular project and so often there's conflict over how things are done but in ontario and in canada really it still remains that you have to have an architect sign off on your building as part, they call it the architect of record. Okay. Right. And normally the architect also acts, they act as the project coordinator for all of the consultants. So like the structural engineer, the MEP, like mechanical, electrical, plumbing, engineering team, landscape, like they act as the project coordinator for that. Now in modular projects, to get your maximum value, you really want to have your design lead be the your design team to be that project coordinator so that the architect checks on all of this because they have to sign off on it and because their insure, project insurance actually covers the whole project, right? It's, again, just the, the history of how projects work. So they have to sign off on it and review, but they don't do the same amount of work. Their main task beyond the initial design, like the initial drawing or rendering of what the building might look for, like their task becomes mostly ensuring that the building meets all of the building code requirements. So they are code reviewers. And so a lot of architects don't like that idea. You know, it just affects how they feel about their own architectural world. But more and more architects and architectural firms are in, in Toronto. I know of at least one, I think probably one plus two other ones that specialize or one that's totally all modular and two that are no modular really well and understand the projects and understand these things. Uh, so it's certainly growing. But other architects just, you know, like a week ago, I tried to explain to an architectural firm how a modular project works. And, well, they didn't hang up on me, but, you know, yeah, it was not the happiest experience. You, you weren't a, a real friendly audience there. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. 
Well, so as I look at, at modular in general, there's some companies out there, especially with some investment dollars and private equity, are really trying to make some waves right now in modular offsite construction. Of course, there's the ill-fated Katera, but there's other companies very active right now. Uh, companies like Boxable, Factory OS, and Mighty Buildings uh, are three that, that come to mind for me. But what are your thoughts on companies like these? Will they be the ones to lead the way into significant development and change and new technologies in offsite construction? Well, they're certainly on the leading edge of it, right? And the challenges for them, like Katera. So, you know, to give you a little history of me, before I, like I said, I've been in construction for 15 years. But prior to that, I was in the organic food business, believe it or not. But, and in Canada, I was on what would be called the bleeding edge of organic farming. Because in Canada, 20 years ago, or more people, you know, people didn't want anything to do with organic. So nowadays, you know, everybody's looking for organic food on the shelves, right? And the big grocery stores carry it. Walmart has organic, mm -hmm. right? When my family had an organic farm, which we did, you know, the grocery stores would laugh at you. So my concern is that certainly Katera was kind of like on that bleeding edge, right? So they were teaching everybody else how to go, and then they fail. And so I think that these other people are a step ahead of that, and they have some real opportunity, and I have my fingers, toes, and everything else crossed that they will be successful because, you know, there's enough room for probably 20 more companies like each of those mm -hmm. in the marketplace, and they're really needed. And I think they have, you know, all, all three of those that you mentioned are good they have good, solid ideas from what I can tell. I mean, I haven't, you know, been there or anything, but from what I'm seeing in the uh, news and reading about them and what I hear, they're all doing good things for sure. Yeah. No, that makes sense. They've, they've got the, the bucks and, you know, hopefully they'll be the ones to help drive things forward. So I'm curious, any of our listeners out there who may be in design or construction and they find themselves kind of intrigued by what we're talking about, where would you su suggest they go to learn more about a few possible career in modular construction? Well, another great question. It's really quite a good one because, and in the background, one of my projects I'm working with actually with a large indigenous group, Aboriginal group here in Canada, is to develop a certification program that would create a certification in modular construction, right? So if you're working at a modular factory, really you become, you know, a jack of all trades because you really, when you're trying to find the best people to work in a modular manufacturing facility, you, you know, you want to find people who are adaptable and can work doing different types of jobs. It's the same with, and we're talking now, we're talking all about, you know, building the actual, the boxes in the factory, right? But the next big part of this is that you put the boxes in place and then somebody's got to seal them all up sure. and, you know, do that site work. And that's a whole different thing. Like that site work, again, is quite different than what it is in a conventional project. And that causes a great deal of grief in the modular industry because it's hard to find, like we talked about architects, but try talking about general contractors and how they react when, you know, when they're getting... 10% of the work on site instead of 100% of the work. Uh, and really, and you'll find that in the U.S. anyway, there's a number of companies that specialize in modular installation, right? So they will work with modular companies and do just that installation because in that, you know, like putting the building together and finishing and all the finishing, because really, even like we're talking about this imaginary uh, apartment built mid-rise apartment like that, you know, might really only need like 15 people for six weeks to finish it. 
And so, but you want to have the right 15 people who understand what the jobs are. Uh, so hopefully I answered that question because I got kind of diverted to the site aspect, but we hadn't had a chance to talk about the site yet because, and it's an important aspect of modular because that site, that's another kind of challenge in the industry is to be able to get that site work done competently and, and properly sure. and meet all the requirements, right? Well, and I see that as a real career opportunity for folks too. I mean, as you develop more offsite construction, you're going to need more people for those site work. And, you know, that's ideal for the folks who, you know, really do want to be outside and they want to be doing real hands-on stuff. And uh, so I, I see that as a great opportunity. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And you, you know, that's a good point and I hadn't really thought of it, but yes, it is really an opportunity for the people who do like to work on site and, you know, inside, outside, et cetera. Sure. And uh, it gives them a career path because probably in five years, 10 years at the most, there'll be a lot more modular manufacturers around and a lot more opportunity for doing that. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, this has been great. Um, I've really enjoyed this. I think we've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Um, we're kind of close to wrapping up what I call the business end of things. Um, is there anything we haven't covered today that uh, you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, good question. No, we've covered a lot, really. Pop-up modular. I like that. Kit of parts modular, same kind of thing. Uh, volumetric, which is the boxes. We've talked about standards and quality control. Uh, I don't think I gave my little thing about, you know, the different, oh, the only part we might spend some time is to talk about the design aspects. Okay. And then the, this is another opportunity certainly for people out there, which is, it's like right now, like certainly for a single family home or even a mid-sized building, an architect can produce floor plans and, you know, elevations and, you know, a good uh, estimator, conventional estimator, can order all the wood and everything for it. And a decent general contractor could build that building just on those. So for modular, though, it's very important to be able to create very detailed drawings. And, and generally, the best practice right now is using a program called Revit. And you use Revit 3D, you make a three-dimensional model of each of the boxes and then you make a model of the entire building and then you can see exactly how each box is connected to the other box and all of the electrical and plumbing and everything can be done. So there's a lot more and you use another product called BIM 360 to kind of act as the coordinator for all of those so that then you can have like your, your electrical contractor you give them access to that BIM 360 model, they can go in and make sure they can actually do their estimate for site work uh, based on using that BIM 360 model. So I think there's, the, so the, the design part of that project is generally quite a, you know, is quite, is more complex. I don't know how, I don't want to use it, quantify it, but it's more complex. And, but that assists in the quality, the supply chain, and, you know, a positive outcome in the end. So certainly I think there's, because uh, there is a shortage. I was talk, again talking to somebody who can't find people in Canada who can use Revit. Oh, and before I forget, another thing is the use of augmented reality, right? So are you familiar with augmented reality in construction? Sure. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I bet you are. So this is another real disruptive force in construction is the use of augmented reality, especially in modular, because what you can do basically is, is for example, when you're setting the modules, you can you identify your point on the foundation, put your, your uh, AR glasses on, and then it will show you exact, precisely where that module is to be landed, what has to be done inside the module to connect them. Like there's all sorts of wonderful tech out there that, you know, costs money, but boy, it sure is fancy. Sure is nice. <laughs> you know, maybe, it, maybe you got to have some of the bigger guys involved to, to put the money out for that, but lots of fun. Anyway, that's it. 
Well, I love that, though, because, again, career opportunities for folks involving modular offsite construction, but yet folks who are more have a technical bent or a design bent to them. Again, lots of career opportunities and lots of opportunities, it seems to me, for people to uh, get in on the early stages of you know what is going to continue to be a growing and, and big, big thing going forward. Indeed. This has been great, Stephen. Thank you very much. Before we close out, I do want to ask you if you're willing to participate in something we call our rapid fire questions. So these are seven questions that may range from serious to silly. All you got to do is provide a quick, short answer to each one. And uh, our audience understands, of course, if you agree to this, you don't have a clue what we're about to ask you. So um, are you up? Well, the problem, the problem you said there, Todd, was they have to be quick answers, or they have to be <laughs> short answers. And I think after our short time together, you realize that's a hard one for me. But I will give it a try. Awesome. And they don't really have to be short answers. <laughs> but that's, that's the only... only I will do my best. Okay, I'm ready for you. Just a minute. Well, we will alternate. Brian, you want to ask the first question? Sure. I'd be glad to. Kicking things off, what was your uh, favorite childhood TV show? Superman. That was a quick answer. That's good. Question number two. Are you a morning person or a night owl? (laughs) I am a morning, I would say a morning person. Yes. I tend to fall asleep on the couch. For me, as I have gotten older, I used to be more of a night owl, but anymore, no. I'd rather get up in the morning and get stuff done while I can still think, I guess. I don't know. You know, Todd, I was going to answer it like that, but I didn't want to talk about my age. (laughs) Sorry about that. I'll talk about my age. All right. Next question. What is something about yourself that might surprise people? I'm a classically trained pianist, and my major instrument is trumpet. And I used to play big band jazz. Oh, awesome. That's very cool. That's cool. I, uh, I played saxophone up through eighth grade and I quit because I didn't want to be a band geek in high school. <laughs> Thanks. And no, but I, how stupid is that though, that I, you know, I worried about that. Now I, I feel, I regret giving it up and not playing it. I wish I could still play. So yeah, you can take it back up again. I know I thought yeah. about it. I've looked uh, for some saxophones on, you know, like used saxophones, but I don't know. I'm, I'm learning how to play the guitar. So but I, I regret, I regret not playing because I, as a, you know, as a high school student, I had that stigma that, that I didn't want to be a band geek and I wish I would have been a band geek. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. And I'm very fortunate because my, as I think I said, I have three daughters. They're all musical. Uh, my oldest daughter is a music therapist. So uh, music's always been a big part of our family. That's yeah. awesome. Cool. Well, Stephen, I still have my uh, box Stradivarius from eighth grade, but I haven't played it since college. But uh, I may pick it up again someday. You never know. So next question. Um, French fries, potato chips, or neither one? Well, I'm Canadian. Poutine. Poutine, yes. I should have known. Poutine. Yes. Yeah, that's French fries with cheese and gravy. Made, made even healthier Ooh. than French fries and potato chips together would be. <laughs> no, poutine is, is uh, I wouldn't call it healthy in the least. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. What's your favorite season of the year? It switches between spring and fall, but I think the spring really, because I do enjoy watching the trees come back to life. Like I said, I live in a, now live in a forest. So that's great. And then we had a farm before and I enjoy the spring. Yeah. Awesome. And I'm very fortunate just to add in because I'm in Canada and where I am, uh, we have four beautiful seasons. I mean, Canada, uh, I think is a, I have had the privilege of living and working in virtually every part of the country. And it is a gorgeous, wonderful place. I agree. I was wondering if you still had four seasons where you were. I mean, we get to experience all of them here in Ohio, and I absolutely love it. My wife does not. She wants to live oh. where it's summer year-round, but <laughs> I love the season. I think you'd get bored with it. I yeah. think she'd get bored with it after a while. I did too. Yeah. Question number six. Do you prefer prefer an active, noisy environment or a quiet place? <laughs> 
I prefer, you mean when I'm working or is it when you're working or when you're? I would just say in general, maybe, maybe to decompress. Some people decompress in a active environment and others are yeah. wider. Well, again, as you can probably tell from talking to me, I, I'm, I'm a gregarious people person at heart, right? Mm -hmm. So I love to have people over for dinner and that sort of thing and, and have conversation and debate politics you know, like U.S. midterm elections. And oh. <laughs> are you going to cut that out of the tape? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just wondering if it, will, if it will have been settled by the time this actually airs. We'll find out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I am definitely, you know, a political-minded person. So I must say, when I'm working, I do like it quiet, although I often listen to music. Uh, but that's a good question. Cool. Final question. Is there any word that you absolutely hate? <laughs> Probably it's like more of a phrase, which is that can't be done. Oh. Right? Because I'm a firm believer in that really, you know, there's, there's a way to get everything done. I love that. I love that. Well, one other thing uh, I want to cover here is our challenge words. And I'm pleased to say that we were all successful at working in our challenge word. Uh, mine was the word elaborate, which I kept wanting to use as elaborate instead of elaborate. Ryan, your word was? Consumption. And you were successful at that, right? Yes, I worked it in with the cheesy alcohol consumption joke at the beginning. There you go. That was it. You got it. Yeah, you got it done early. And Stephen, your word was? Watermelon. <laughs> Thanks for that nice, easy one. Although it remains my favorite fruit, and that was real. You did a great job of working it in. Thank you. Well, Stephen, again, uh, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. It was fun. Thank you, gentlemen. For, Thank you. For folks who would like to get in contact with you, uh, what's the easiest way for them to do that? Well, you can, um, let's see, probably my email is easy, which is my name, Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, at Hailstrom, H-A-Y-L-E-S-T-R-O-M.com. Stephen at Hailstrom.com, or on LinkedIn, you find me, Stephen Hailstrom, you know, and on LinkedIn, I have all my email and that sort of thing. So Fantastic. all of those are good. The website is themodularsolution.com. So, yeah. Very good. Well, we will put those in the show notes as well. So um, thank you again. This has been great. And I want to thank our audience for tuning into this episode of Construction Disruption with Stephen Hailstrom of The Modular Solution, Rise Up Modular. Please watch for future episodes of our podcast. We always have great guests. Um, don't forget to leave a review on the Apple Podcasts or YouTube. Until the next episode, though, change the world for someone, make them smile, encourage them to very easy, simple things you can do, but yet so powerful to change the world. God bless. Take care. This is Isaiah Industries signing off until the next episode of Construction Disruption.